This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Aplos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, donations, and your people. So go to nonprofit.aplos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Well, today's guest is one of the most interesting and highly passionate guests I've had ever on the show. His name is Matthew Zachary. As a 25-year brain cancer survivor, the founder of a groundbreaking nonprofit, Stupid Cancer, and creator of the world's first health podcast that gave voice to millions, Matthew knows firsthand that today's healthcare conversations are too polite. Now the man that Newsweek coined a cancer rebel and Deepak Chopra called a peace healer has launched Offscript Media to build community and in isolation for patients and caregivers. You're going to really enjoy today's show. Well, Matthew, thanks so much for being on the show today. I have to start with the moniker that Newsweek magazine you know, gave to you, which is the Cancer Rebel. So talk about why and how you received that name. What's the background story on this? I've always been a strategic douchebag. When you put a microphone in front of my face for purpose, you get what you deserve. I love it. Okay. So we got to be careful. We may have to edit this episode here. <laughs> yeah. Are you PG-13? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are right now. We don't have an explicit E by our podcast at this point. <laughs> That's fine. I can be, I will behave. I promise, Rob. Okay, good. <laughs> no, well, great. Yeah. So give me a little background. I, I love seeing the article. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about this nonprofit you started. But yeah, give me maybe a little bit of the background and what, what's that from and how did you get on the, the cover of Newsweek? Well, uh, the Dime Store Tour, and I'm, I'm for your listeners, I'm extraordinarily, perhaps unnecessarily Googleable. Just Matthew Zachary, and you'll re you'll read my my saga in a sense. Started out as a concert pianist uh, growing up. Went to undergraduate at Binghamton in New York State to study film okay. composition, and oh, wow. minored in computer science. Uh, wasn't planning on using my Plan B. I'll get to that in a second. Um, okay. lost the ability to perform with my left hand in the summer of 1995, went misdiagnosed for six months, and finally, you have terminal brain cancer. Go figure. Wow. And yeah, just a little wow moment right there. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm telling someone else's story at this point, but it was <laughs> me, mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. was 25 years ago as of this recording yesterday. So Wow, yesterday. That is amazing. Yes. Uh, as of this taping, uh, January 10th, 1996. Well, congratulations. You obviously survived and, and then some. Oh, you spoiled it. <laughs> Sorry, I got ahead of you. <laughs> keep going, keep going. 
So everything obviously went into, you know, bananas land and, and, and crazy nonsense. And I had to, I had to cancel my grad school plans and wound up just not really having a twenties. I fell back on my, um, plan B and wound up fixing Macintosh computers for ad agencies in the 1990s and regretted that because they didn't get to pursue my dreams. And all of my other friends went off and lived their lives and, you know, cancer was, cancer sucks no matter what happens, but in the 90s, it sucked a whole lot more because it was the 90s. Yeah. There wasn't this attention to mental health and quality of life and individuality and all these things out there. And, you know, kind of meandered my 20s alone and, but wound up rehabilitating myself after five years okay. and recorded some albums just for myself, which are still on iTunes. If anyone wants to give me 11 cents for my couch cushions, I'm on iTunes. One shameless plug. I need my 11 cents, exactly, to all your list. But I spent 10 years in marketing, advertising. I built myself up to, you know, creative and brand, all the, all the selling Doritos to teenagers stuff that happened before regulations got in the way. Mm-hmm. But along the way, chapter three was I got recruited into cancer advocacy by folks that saw my concerts. Because uh, I was ah. giving piano concerts, again, finally reclaiming everything. Mm-hmm. And Plan C, which I didn't have, became Plan A, and Plan B went away, and I became a cancer advocate. My first question was, what's a cancer advocate? I don't know what that is. But I had incredible fortune at the right time, before the Internet, before everything got really complicated, to seize an opportunity. Having zero nonprofit experience, which may be the most qualified idiot in the room to do something, I started a, a nonprofit called I'm Too Young for This, which was a <laughs> young adult cancer, tongue in cheek, Gen X, 80s throwback, you know, man brand after Livestrong collapsed. And it just took off the, the before, ha- all right, hi- history lesson kids, before hashtags, we had slogans. The slogan <laughs> was stupid cancer. So I was offered, and this leads me to where we are today, just to, to rapidly accelerate the dime store, which is now a $50 tour, is yeah. someone threw a mic in front of my face and said, there's this internet radio thing going on. Would you like to be a, a DJ? That's what they called us, right? Uh, you know, the Howard Stern or whatever, the Scott and Todd in the morning. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm an NPR junkie did radio in college. Why not? And sure enough, on May 28, 2007, the stupid cancer show was born. And who knew at the time before the word podcast was podcast, it was an internet radio show. It was, again, for kids to look this up, live, not streamed. So like ER in the 90s, if you missed it, you missed it. So that's it. Sorry. Goodbye. Talk to me about this nonprofit a little bit. This is a nonprofit leadership podcast, right? Uh, my listeners are all about, you know, they're, whether they're a CEO, a development director, a board member. So talk about how you got it started. You obviously had a personal experience that prompted you to do this in the first place. But why did you form the nonprofit? And then how has it grown since? I formed it because I thought it'd be easy. Ha <laughs> ha, famous last words. But I'm uh-huh. going to keep going back to the fact that I had no idea what I was doing with no experience and no money. I didn't know what governance was, what bylaws were, what a board meant. What do you mean? What's an Excel spreadsheet? That's literally, I'm a Photoshop guy that plays piano. That's me. (laughs) 
So mm-hmm. I knew nothing. And, you know, I, now I know the IRS doesn't care unless you make more than 50 grand a year. So kind of skirted by for a while. <laughs> but it was just so interesting to learn along the way. And I'm at a point now in my career where I'm now telling people to not start a charity because you're just going to hopefully don't make the mistakes that I made. There are very few founders who stepped down when they were on top. And, you know, uh, I feel like I have a lot to offer people to, you know, here's what you don't do. And if you don't think about it this way, it doesn't work. And again, <laughs> one of my favorite questions, your reaction is, you know, what made it so successful? And I said, 16 years. That's what made it so successful. Hard work, huh? Yes. It's the illusion of instantaneous gratification. So, I, you know, it's just an endless struggle. I think payroll was a big deal. Uh, D&O insurance was a big deal. But in a sense, understanding that nonprofits are also a business that should yeah. be a brand that should have the same level of KPIs and ROIs and, and, and acronyms and business crap that you're supposed to have. If you don't think about it from that perspective, it will fail unless Bill Gates is on your board of directors, period. <laughs> Which I understand he was on. No, was he on your board? No, no, no. I never got that lucky. <laughs> okay. All right. You're tried, but no, good point. All right. Good. All right. Interesting. And obviously, I, I am impressed. You were the founder. You've handed it off. I did look on the website. I mean, you've got a team. It's still going. So there, the founder syndrome, you must have overcome that pretty well. Talk about the handoff, the last two years. Uh, how did that go? How are you doing? Are you having withdrawals from being uh, the leader of this organization? Or how are you feeling about that? Well, I think I wrote an exit on LinkedIn, and I wasn't expecting the response. I'll send you the link to put in the description if you'd like. You bet. 88,000 people read that. And that was like more than 10x what I normally get on a LinkedIn post. (laughs) And (laughs) they heard around the world that Matthew's leaving and whatever. It was very validating, but it was really, it it, it validated not just like, hey, people like me, you know, Sally Field getting an Oscar. It was more like I made the right choice. And the article goes into several things, but I started this, you know, newly married with no kids off the heels of a lucrative agency career with nothing to care about, just whatever. And by 2017, I was old with eight-year-olds and creaky, and it had become a job, and it wasn't fun anymore. And the only way up was out. So it took me a year to come to grips with a couple of other, you know, factors. I think when you get haters, you know you're successful, but it might be time. It's like the Gozer sign, you know, like a, when the key master or the gatekeeper, that was it. That was the sign. And it was. Okay. the channel, anyone listening, exacerbated, you know, CEO life. I had to be in L.A. three weekends in a row for three separate business events for stupid cancer. And it broke me. Absolutely broke me. And I was on a roof deck on my way back to LAX with a colleague of mine. And I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. The running joke is if it had been my wife, she would have slapped me. If it would have been my daddy, would have bonked me on the head. But she said, you're going to be fine no matter what you do. And it's kind of all I needed to hear. But to your point is, is I'll use the metaphor to de-Velcro me from the institutional sedimentary layers of stupid cancer after 15 years. It took eight months. Wow. So 
But a lot of conscious decisions were made. And again, I admire anyone that can leave when they're perceived to be on top. And it's hard. One of the things you mentioned earlier was uh, this. One of your key themes at times is you, I'm assuming you may be on your podcast um, and you talk to people individually and you ask them, why are you wanting to start this charity? Or you turn around even saying why you shouldn't start a charity. So maybe talk about that. What do you mean by that? Obviously, you started your own nonprofit. You're involved in the nonprofit sector. What do you mean by this that a lot of people shouldn't start a charity? What's the background behind that? A lot of it's just sardonic tongue in cheek. I'm a little angry that it's too easy to get one. It's too easy okay. to start one. Like kind of like how you should probably have a master's degree and 10 years in the army to, to serve in government kind of stuff. Like there should be some basic mandates for you to qualify mm-hmm. to lead and do these things. You should have an MBA to start a nonprofit. Okay. You should have mm-hmm. to go through like six months of certification training on what it means to you know assign a secretary and a board as volunteer role and hold them accountable. Right? You should have some degree of like, you know, some associate's degree in what do you mean a grant portal and spend 11 <laughs> years writing a budget for some template from some pharma company, right? There should be some, some, some ways in which it deters you so that like the weak fall off and the strong get in. Yeah. And, and, and that there really are no guidelines, guard, guardrails, sorry, say that there really are no guardrails to yeah. prevent well-intended people to waste donor dollars for, I would almost say, self-serving intent. And I say this with love mm-hmm. because, and this is controversial, I don't mind getting the hate, but the Someone Died Foundation is not a reason to start a charity. They're not started because of survey analysis and competitive data and rational business planning and strategic blah, 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 blah. They're based on, you know, this happened to me. It shouldn't happen to the next me. I'm going to do something about it. And it's, I'm not faulting the human condition in the moment of horse blinder passion because you're angry and you wish it was better. But putting some forethought, again, like the 20-step program before you even think about it. And it goes back to when I've endlessly quoted this, Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park says to the scientists, You spent so much time thinking whether you could. You never spent any time thinking whether you should. Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Aplos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, donations, and your people. So go to nonprofit.aplos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to make sure you knew about how to get some more great content. When you go to our website, just look at the top right section of the homepage under the words subscribe. 
you can simply type in your email address and then you will be added to our monthly email update. In addition to getting great access to some superb content, you'll get the latest podcast shows right to your inbox. Now, this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or content on this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email us. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Dan mentions this, and I was going to ask you this anyway. You're a big proponent of nonprofits not devaluing the quality of the programs that you're providing, paying your people well, making sure that when you go to donors that, yeah, we're worth you know investing X amount of dollars. Maybe talk about that. Why is that so important in your mind? What were some of your experiences along those lines? And what would you say to my listeners who maybe uh, still worry about, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask, that's too much money to ask for, or we shouldn't put this much money into a staff person because we're supposed to be a charity. You know, What would you say to that? Again, this goes back to exactly Dan Pallotta is what is the value of your own self-worth and what is your worth valued out to other people outside your bubble? And I'm vehemently opposed to overpaying people, but I believe in you get what you pay for. And if you're making a hundred million bucks leading Pepsi and then you go run the Ford Foundation, you shouldn't be making a hundred million bucks, but I could probably see needing to make five million bucks because it takes money to make money, which is Dan Pallotta's exact philosophy. Mm-hmm. You're going to invest $10 million to make $100 million, and then they say that's too much, and you invest $5 million to make $10 million? What makes more sense? Mm-hmm. That is fundamental dogmatic principles around the perception of nonprofits is entirely wrong based on our culture's appreciation or understanding or lack of understanding of what it means to have impact And impact is the magic word. So we've had in the past, I mean, we I'm not there anymore. In the past, many donors came and said, we'd like to give you money, but we don't want it to pay for your electricity or pay for your rent. I'm like, well, you know what? Goodbye. I don't want your money. (laughs) And I'm going on Twitter to 30,000 people and telling them this donor that I'm not mentioning, and and then I ask them, of course, (laughs) wants this. And I didn't care. We didn't need money. You know, you mentioned COVID-19, obviously it's impacted all of us, particularly when it comes to uh, the nonprofit sector, because we rely on donations. Now, it sounds like your nonprofit has done really well and thrived. Ironically, the, the one I lead, same thing. So we kind of reversed the model, but I know the majority, well, I, I've heard up to 30% of nonprofits across the board are all struggling and may not make it, honestly, uh, over the next six months. Uh, so talk to me about that. How has COVID impacted the organizations? You kind of referred a little bit to maybe there were some weaknesses before COVID hit and now COVID exposed those weaknesses in the organization. But what else do you feel like um, COVID revealed about nonprofits and what do we need to change in order to continue to create more sustainable nonprofits? I mean, again, as for stupid kids, I don't have hands on on their finances and economics. I, I'm just, you know, like I, I'm, I'm being told through people I'm aware of that, hey, they're still here. <laughs> They're still doing programs. I'm happy. And to the extent that if I had any, if I had any influence in planting the, the seed that they, it could do this, not knowing there was a pandemic coming, then that's fantastic. But you start to look at how, you know, major companies are now realizing that they can save a whole lot of money on real estate by making people work from home because you could potentially be just as productive and they could care less about your mental health. So there's that. You know, the penny pinching of this and that. What is the value of real estate when you can go to WeWork instead? Or you can work from home instead. Who cares about your dog in the background? That's just writ large the way HR and business models are going to change. 
starting this year or next year. So any nonprofit that had an office space, it's just an office space. Everyone can work from home. And I say that with love because it's impossible if you have kids and whatever, and nothing is fantastic during pandemic. So all, all love to the people dealing with all that nonsense with kids, pets, school, yeah. you know, job. <clears throat> so number one, it's, it's really easy to just kind of write off like physical plant expenses. Stupid Cancer was also very fortunately largely a digital nonprofit. Outside of some of the live events we had, nearly everything we did was highly influential digital media, recruitment, surveys, studies, push, mobile apps, things like that, like very innovative stuff. That was, And the radio show was hugely profitable for us, the, the, well, the podcast, right? It was always the radio show. To the extent that they were probably able to cruise on the fact that it was largely a digital platform, eliminating physical experience probably didn't create the same hit. And most of the revenue at Stupid Cancer was corporately funded, commercial funded, non-donor related, unrestricted. So if, you know, there's always cancer, pandemic's not making that go away. So in the unique niche of that space, it doesn't surprise me that many of the cancer organizations have sustained, but you start to look at some of the others that have really suffered. So I don't really have an immediate answer outside of oncology, rare disease, and, and healthcare and medicine, but I know for a fact, you know, uh, one of my friends, you know, the food kitchens are nonprofits, and, you know, they're dependent on federal funding and state funding and individual donations. Um, some private libraries, you know, that are nonprofits, synagogues, churches, like that's where we're really starting to see massive shifts in, in, in um, you know, lease withholdings and, you know, threats to evict and vacate, and it's it, nothing's good about that. No, I agree. Well, and I'm glad to hear that. Again, your organization has stayed strong, and that's interesting. You're right. I mean, in the sense, there are two different uh, issues going on, and you were able to continue to keep that mission strong, and you had a, sounds like a great, strong donor base. Um, so as we continue on, when it comes to, maybe not just because of COVID, but obviously COVID is like in our face, and it's hard to get away from it. Do you believe that nonprofits, whether it be in the healthcare sector and or just across the board, nonprofits in general, should they change their fundraising strategy in light of COVID or just in light of where we are going as a country and our world? A lot of answer waiting to happen right now. Okay. I, yeah. I, I hate to be on the record to say this, but someone's got to say it. I think we're going to see a massive shift in the value of nonprofits in the economy because impact is now measurable in the private sector in a way that the nonprofits could never quantify. And that isn't habitat building houses per se, but it is example in the mental health space. Lots of nonprofits in suicide and cancer, mental health, quality of life, psychosocial, all the healthcare related. <clears throat> You're starting to see private sector companies which can scale at a hundred X of a nonprofit, maybe a thousand X of a nonprofit very quickly with $30 million of a, of a friends and family or at a round like, um, better help talk space, the mighty, um, there's like five or six major platforms that have like made it through the rain and the flyer was shifted and millions and millions of people are going there, not Facebook to these, other secure supposedly platforms that are helping them life hack their way through their problems in a non-clinical way. So again, I, I kind of only speak for healthcare, 
um, which is huge and massive nonprofit footprint in, in that sector. But to the extent that the private sector has found a way to tap into some of the impact the nonprofit can have, but scale and do a better job to deliver more value to those potential members of the nonprofit, we're looking at a major sea change in the culture of charity over the next 10 years. Okay. Well, how's it going to change? What, what would you, how would you describe what charity is going to look like in the next five to 10 years? Do you think the market will force people to shut down or will there be more of a consolidation of smaller nonprofits into medium sized to large nonprofits or maybe both? I mean, it goes back to Dan Pilata's like one of his opening statements in the TED talk is that the reason charity exists is because there's nothing in it for the private sector. The private sector is now figuring out how to monetize the gaps that they didn't care about before. So it's a huge economic market shift in the way you scale revenue. And it's all about ad sales. And that's really what it comes down to. If you can get people into a platform that helps them where they don't have to be threatened by making a donation, that's another major way to think about it. Interesting. So you feel like the emphasis, I know I've had several people on the show to talk about social enterprise, B Corps. Is that that push in the for-profit sector? You feel like that's part of what you're speaking to, that they really are finding value. They're making a difference with their company. It's not just about money and the bottom line. Um, is that what you're referring to? Is there a bigger picture than that? I mean, again, social footprint is all about who can economically gain from it the most. I mean, I'm not a business yeah. guy, but I'm now thinking ex exclusively from a monetization and upsell and exit strategy. Yeah. You know, if you start to look at rare disease where there's like six people a year with this thing, yeah, they're going to raise money. They give the one doctor to fund his research. That's never going to not, that's never not going to be there. That's, that's desperately necessary. But if you're going to be able to figure out how do you get people into clinical trials and you're dependent on nonprofits to help patients understand them, but you figure out a better way to do it in the private sector, they're not going to care about that nonprofit anymore because they have no value to the, to the monetization and the exit strategy. So, it's a very dark way to think about how the fragility of C3 tax status has has an endpoint. And we're reaching that endpoint in several different key markets and market sectors. And I don't think there'll ever be a need for it to entirely go away because, again, it's based on tithing. Religion is very heavily tethered to the nonprofit sector. And many of the markets are contingent on that as well. But the more we see people going to GoFundMe, for their, you know, their financial challenge without a nonprofit giving them their money, the more pharmaceutical companies that offer copay assistance for free without going to a copay assistance nonprofit organization, they're finding ways to de-equitize the value that's been brought to bear over the last 40 years in healthcare nonprofits. Okay, so if you were to start Stupid Cancer today, would you start as a for-profit or a nonprofit? I do a private sector, yeah. Okay, interesting. Do you think you'd be even more effective today doing it that way? Yeah. Uh, it, it, the economy's changed. Consumers have changed. Their perceptions mm -hmm. and attitudes towards corporate corruption and authenticity and genuine brands with social halos and corporate social responsibility, that is what gets them. And I say them writ large. Patients are consumers. And you're looking to deliver information, support utilities, and life hacks that are non-clinical. What's going to help them do X, Y, and Z when they enter the crap, this happened to me store, right? What am I buying? Where am I going? It's 
how do you get through this stuff and endure with style? Again, I'm exclusively healthcare because that's my, my lane. You can accomplish more as a private sector with a social halo that does impact because you can scale and monetize and build that halo effect very differently than making blenders pink for October. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, good call. One more area to talk a bit about. This podcast is dedicated to leadership. You're a leader. You continue to do leadership beyond just what your nonprofit, uh, you know, how you started and you've handed that off, of course. Talk about leadership. In your opinion, what are the most important aspects of leaders and specifically now for the nonprofit sector? My first job was fixing Macintosh computers for uh, an ad agency. And I was like six months out of cancer. I didn't know what I was doing with myself, whatever. But he said to me, and he was like the senior IT director. He said to me, no matter where you go in your career, no matter what happens to you, Never be too proud to get under a desk and plug something in for someone else. And I say that, and I've said that to every single employee I've ever hired. And if they ever get too proud to plug something in for someone else, you're fired. The second is, goes back to, uh, it was probably Steve Jobs that said this, because it sounds very Jobsy and to say it this way, but you don't hire people to teach them what to do. You hire people for them to teach you what to do. I like that. And the third one is they're not your friends, but they're your team. And they can be your friends, but they're your team first. And it's hard to separate, especially as a smaller nonprofit where you become a little family-ish. That is a business. And interpersonal skills matter more than anything else. But to separate yourself from your colleagues and your work is that if you don't operate as a functional team and everyone's involved, you don't work. Uh, that's really powerful insight. D break that down a little bit. Tell me about how do you differentiate between a friendship and a teammate? Very hard. I want you to bleep this. I want the Daily Show, John Stewart bleep, but you can't help but sometimes. Mm -hmm. And especially to anyone listening that is running a mom and pop nonprofit, where it's you and your wife or your friend from college or whatever it is you're starting, you can't get out of You're like roommates on a couch. You can't get away from each other. But as you build a team, there's always going to be those first three or four people that are proud of that. And you will eventually shed your skin and bring on new talent, ideally. But to understand and keep in perspective that, that scaling is a benefit. Scaling is a blessing. They're your team first, meaning they're your employees first, and they're your friends second. They don't have to be your friends to be your team. I like it. No, really wise. And I think that is something that's very, very difficult and have to be another podcast for another day to talk more about how do you lead and manage people, you know, as friends slash teammates. Okay. So I think my listeners are going to want to know a little bit more about you, what you do. How would they find out more about you? Do you have a website to send them a book? Um, where would you send uh, my listeners to find out more about you and what you do? Well, MatthewZachary.com. You know, I'm, I'm back behind a microphone. I have a new podcast called Out of Patience, which is the people's voice in healthcare. We break down all sorts of BS and nonsense each week and interviews like these with leadership and talking all sorts of why is this a thing? This shouldn't be so difficult, you know, basically aggrieved George Costanza-like conversations like every week. So, and my new venture is called Offscript Media. We are the first patient advocate audio media company and we're a network. We do uh, work for clients. We're launching some research initiatives and it's been it's it's the the next chapter 
after learning so much as a nonprofit leader. Love it. Well, I love your passion. I uh, love your enthusiasm and energy. So I encourage my listeners to check out MatthewZachary.com. And uh, Matthew, again, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show today. Thanks, Doc. Well, we're excited to have Apolos as the sponsor of this nonprofit podcast. And what's unique about Apolos is that they are dedicated not only to providing you with the best tools, but also to offering free training from their in-house experts and CPAs. Right now, you can get access to a solid webinar on five essential financial reports for nonprofit leaders. To get access, go to nonprofit.apples.com. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.